0: Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, They'll Come.
1: It's a business with a social purpose. I suppose that's what you're trying to do here. I suppose that's the approach we started to take, that this this has to be run as a good business with a really strong social purpose and strong mission.
0: Hello, and welcome back to Build It, They'll Come. Firstly, thank you so much for your listening support in our first year. Much appreciated. Well, it's a new year and we have in store for you some fantastic entrepreneurs and innovators who you'll get to meet. Some well-known, some you've never heard of. Successful self-starters who backed a light bulb idea and built it into a successful, sustainable empire or movement. Be it a business or a not-for-profit, you'll hear the how they did it. Build It, They'll Come reveals the human face behind taking a humble idea and what it takes to build it from concept to execution, with the ups and the downs included. So let's go. To kick off this year, you'll meet two very different entrepreneurs, two visionaries in the not-for-profit space, who saw a need and then set about finding a solution and making it happen. Effectively, this is about an entrepreneurial startup, a research foundation, within a charity, the Cerebral Palsy Alliance. And that research foundation has grown from scratch just 15 years ago and has been transformed into a global, sustainable powerhouse that helps with prevention and better treatments for those living with cerebral palsy. My guests are Rob White, who's the CEO of Cerebral Palsy Alliance, and Professor Nadia Badawi, Chair of Cerebral Palsy at the University of Sydney, internationally respected neonatologist and expert in cerebral palsy, and Medical Director of the Grace Centre for Newborn Care at the Children's Hospital Westmead in Sydney. And for full disclosure, I am fortunate to sit on the Council of Governors of the Cerebral Palsy Alliance Research Foundation, so I get to see my two guests close up and in dynamic action. Enjoy. Welcome, Rob White and Professor Nadia Badawi to Build It, They'll Come. Thank you, Helen. Great to have you. Neither of you would probably think of yourselves as entrepreneurs, but I wanted to talk to you for this series because together, you two, with a lot of help from many others, Rob, along the way, you had an original vision, an idea for what could be done better to help those living with cerebral palsy, CP, and you transformed that vision for the need for research and that's to achieve better outcomes, better treatments, into a first class world respected organization, which you built, that now funds some of the best research that's going on worldwide. And those researchers are quite simply getting successful results in helping prevent and treating CP. So that's why you very firmly belong in this series. I want you to take us back perhaps to the beginning. We will move around a bit. Give people, Rob, a potted picture, I guess, of the Cerebral Palsy Alliance that really started out as the Spastic Centre in New South Wales.
1: Thanks, Helen. Yes, the Spastic Centre was started by a wonderful family called the McLeods, who actually came from Perth. They had a child. Their first child was born with cerebral palsy, not that they knew it was cerebral palsy at the point. And I think it took them a couple of years. She apparently had, when you read what he had written, Neil McLeod had written, she had a floppy head. They finally got a diagnosis of, I think, spastic quadriplegia. He was an engineer and it was 1944 and he was sent across to Sydney to work. He then started what was the Spastic Centre, he and his wife. He was obviously ahead of his time in fundraising because wherever he went, he'd sort of ask people. And he came across a guy for money, but they didn't get much money. I think the first donation he got was 20 pounds. A strong guy who also told him that he had a farm in Crookwell, he had a house in Newport and he had a house in Mossman in Queen Street. And he offered, without talking to his wife, that they could maybe start up a rehab or a school in the house in Queen Street, which is actually now Queenwood School. So this is
0: Queen Street in Mossman in Sydney's Sydney's harbourside suburbs. Yeah. So they were given a house there to
1: start the first, what became the Spastic Centre? Yeah, he went to a, a meal there. He and his wife lived in Gladesville and they caught the bus and ferry and everything to go to the house. And the wife was unaware of it. This this person's wife who owned the house. And the donor's wife. And the donor's wife. And so, what over the no meal, had, had no idea that the house was going to be given gonna, away? And after the meal, the husband raised it and the wife sort of raised her eyes that I don't know anything about this. And, but they moved all their furniture and put it into a part of the house and they gave them the whole house to use. And that's where it started. So it was very entrepreneurial in its day. And it became a world leader because it was actually the first organization in the world established for people with cerebral palsy. The first, and very quickly around the world, organisations cropped up both in England and the States.
0: Really, and then look, we're jumping around, and obviously the Macleods—they did an amazing job. Parents starting it because Absolutely. they had a need and saw a need, but. The Spastic Centre also began the Miss Australia Quest, which was a huge yeah. event, what really through the 50s, 60s, and right up 70s, to but right, right up, up to 2000. 2000. But it was a major event huge.
1: in those earlier decades. So apparently, the Miss Australia Quest was owned by a bra company who did donate that to the Spastic Centre. And the Spastic Centre ran that very successfully for 50 years, I'd say, or 40 years. and. It was wonderful because it was a household name. The person who won Miss Australia was in the Women's Mm -hmm. Weekly, so it was fantastic branding for the Spastic Centre. And that Miss Australia used to travel the world, go meet the Queen, meet the President. So in an uncluttered, probably not-for-profit market in those days, it was really a bit of a household name. Oh,
0: they were able to put what not only a national focus, but an international spotlight on this thing called spasticity was it still known as then?
1: Yes, I mean it was called cerebral palsy, but most people sort of knew it as that, yeah.
0: But it also then they sort of much later the organization started a fairly ambitious manufacturing kind of outfit to try and give people living with cerebral palsy some sort of work, independent
1: work. Well, there's no funding. So there's no government funding whatsoever. They got a little bit, as you read the history, they got a bit through the education department because it was a school. And then because he was an engineer, Mr. McLeod started this factory called Centre Industries and it used to employ close to a thousand people, mostly able-bodied people, but also people with cerebral and he believed every person had the right to work and this was you know in the 50s 60s well ahead of his time in a lot of ways that did bring income into the organization so they could actually use the profit on center industries to then support because what he did build up with his wife Audrey they built up this rehab center and Parents got a free service, but they had to volunteer their time for two days a week. But the parents actually built the centres, so they went around and they used to big borrow and steal and built the centres and then they built a big centre up at Alambie Heights. Yeah. But they never had any money. I mean, they basically had a famous saying, if they ever got any, they you know, someone would say, save it for a rainy day and here to say it's raining today. You know, it, it was always short of money and they needed money Because the expansion of services, there was no government funding. Slowly and slowly, I suppose, they started to get government funding.
0: Rob, I just want you to leap forward 50, 60, 70 years now. What's the dot point comparison to today's CPA, the Cerebral
1: Palsy Alliance? We now, as an organisation, as a not-for-profit, we turn over about 230 million. We see about 7,000 people a year, and we've got 130 sites, as well as an international research foundation, a tech startup company that we also run, or an accelerator, and a range of other things too.
0: Extraordinary. Now, we'll come back to the success of it uh, later in the podcast, and we will jump around a bit.
2: But how did you two, Nadia and Rob, how did you two come together professionally? So, uh, I did my PhD with Fiona Stanley, who was the Australian of the Year in 2002. And I had a very strong reason to be interested in brain damage or conditions that affected, especially babies. And I'd worked, done my PhD with Fiona. She had started one of the world's top cerebral palsy registers. And then I came to New South Wales. And at the there was a big meeting. Rob was there. Fiona was there. And he, I don't know that he remembers, but I was wheeling my newborn baby uh, in her little buggy. And Fiona said to Rob, "Remember her. Remember her, because she'll be Remember good." Remember her. She so is it was good. So interesting. So she had that sort of foresight, which I think is a lot of what you see in individuals who make a difference. And then we wanted to start a register in New South Wales. There wasn't an Australian register. Of people, who, of Who babies. live, yeah, with cerebral
0: palsy. It's such an important And what do you mean data. when you say register? Explain that for the so
2: it's, uninitiated. Uh, what it is, it's a collection of data around everybody who lives with cerebral palsy. And we all know there's no way you can solve a problem if you don't know how big it is or what causes it, what makes it better, what makes it worse. Everyone who has a pap smear or has a diabetes screen or is in a cancer registry, they understand what a registry means. It has transformed the outcome for cancer. And cerebral palsy didn't have a register. So that was one of the things we wanted to start, and really, the relationship with the Cerebral Palsy Alliance started that way. And when was this, Nadia? So this was about twenty. Well, I'm trying. Miriam's twenty-one. So it was twenty-one years ago that I started working. But Rob wouldn't know about me at the time. Of course, I. What? No, no. So I started working with the researchers because I'm a newborn intensive care specialist, as you know, and I'd come to New South Wales to do that. And one of the outcomes that parents always say, look, first thing, is my baby going to survive? That's increasingly the answer is yes. And the very next question is, is my baby going to have a normal quality of life? Are they going to have brain damage? They see how sick they are. So in the way the world's aligned. And then there was this chair of cerebral palsy. And what does that mean, a chair of cerebral palsy? So it's a professorial position. To work with researchers and really galvanize the research, because one of the problems with cerebral palsy research is that it's been years, decades behind other areas of medicine. I remember was starting as a young doctor. Children were dying of cancer now, thank goodness, that is rare. Infectious diseases like tuberculosis, almost eradicated, rheumatic heart disease. So seeing all these great developments and yet cerebral palsy really had very little focus on it. And why was that? Did people think, can't do anything, those children are destined
0: for a life in a wheelchair in an institution? Yes,
2: I think there are assumptions made. Everybody thought they knew what it was. So first of all, it's brain damage to the developing brain. Well, that was going to be my next question. Sorry, I interrupted you. Say, what is it? So it is, it's brain, it's damage to the developing brain. And the assumption was that it occurred around the time of birth primarily. And the problem with that is, is that all the focus then became on delivering babies by cesarean section. So thanks to that assumption, we now have a very high rate of cesarean sections in Australia. Quite invasive monitoring during the delivery process. And, you know, when you're looking at one area and you think the solution is there, you're missing all the others. And I think the beauty of the register from Western Australia was that it changed everybody's assumptions. They realized that really only 10% of this damage was occurring during the birth process at most. So when's the 90% Most of it is during the pregnancy. But for preterm babies who are about 40% of all people with cerebral palsy, that's a very complicated story. Some Mm. of that's probably happening around their delivery, the time in the intensive care, and that's an area of a lot of work which is showing great results. Yeah, so when you say
0: the, uh, it's really 90% of cerebral palsy comes from in utero, so when the baby is growing... Is it a trauma to the baby's brain? Does that happen spontaneously? It can't all be car accidents or skiing accidents yep. or that it's, sort of trauma. We're
2: just, we've had huge success in Australia and around the world. Just, it's really been amazing. 10 years, and we're where we really didn't think we would be so successful. So we do know about many of the causes. Some of them are infection, genetics. That's again a new story that we're just starting to unravel, that probably about 30% of cerebral palsy has a genetic basis. Some of it is related to other inherited things we're not sure about. It's still a lot of work needs to be done to find all the causes. Multiple births. We know that if a baby is one of twins, they have a much higher risk of brain damage than a singleton. So they're a very big story. that We're going to get to the bottom of it, I'm no doubt, but we've already got a lot of answers. And so to skip
0: forward again, that's why research into it is so important. It's,
2: it, it's essential.
0: And it wasn't done for so long? No.
2: And I think some of it too is that parents get so preoccupied. So, you know, when, I tell, when we tell a parent your child has cerebral palsy, the shock... They're overwhelmed, even though most parents actually know. But when it's confirmed, they're just left in shock and they're bewildered. What does this mean for this beautiful little baby? Because when an adult has a car accident or a stroke, you know what they were like. So you immediately start seeing what they've lost. But a baby has not yet gained a lot of abilities. So it's hard to imagine what they will not attain. They feel they're looking into this crystal ball. What does it all mean? And then their next thing is, well, what is it? What does it mean? Are they going to be able to walk? Then are they going to be able to talk? What's their intellectual ability like? Are they going to have epilepsy, other complications. Then they say, well, what do I do about this? Where do I go? So the research is still unfolding about what is the best treatments for babies.
0: We've moved around a bit already, but Rob, what's your memory of when Nadia came on board? What was the need? How did that happen that she really became involved in the organization?
1: Yeah, look, in 2005, our organization took the bold mood to set up a research foundation. And I mean, putting a focus on it, I suppose that stemmed from, as you said, there was pockets of research around the world, but there wasn't a lot happening, but it was really very much underfunded so we set up a research foundation which i can talk more about our chair of our research foundation and keating said to me you need someone who can drive who's a professor who can drive that sort of medical strategy and that overall strategy so we did an international search and uh, we we're sort of lucky enough to get nadia uh, because she really is an international expert in this area but I do remember when I first met her as well, even though she says I don't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and did she strike you as just Absolutely. the amazing person that you have an
1: amazing person come yeah, to know? She is an amazing person.
0: We are <laughs> going to come back to obviously the research foundation because I do, you know, that's the real entrepreneurial guts I think of, of what you've achieved. But Rob, let's take a, a step back even further. How did you get to
1: what was then the Spastic Centre? Yeah, look, I applied for a job as a psychologist at the Spastic Centre. I actually didn't get the this job. This is early in your this career. Is early in my career and I didn't get the job but then they rang me back and said the person who had accepted the job didn't take it so I like it. So you um, did get the job what are you talking <laughs> about? So um, anyway that was um, and yes yeah, so I worked as a psychologist there for a short period of time and then I went into the management of the organization. I remember those early days it was always financially you know it was hand to mouth in lots of ways. It was, a, it was a, a great organization with incredibly passionate people but there was more you know, the, the, the we couldn't supply the amount of service that people needed. and So you were much
0: struggling financially?
1: Always struggling. And I mean, you know, the you look back now and there were, there were months when probably, you know, they were struggling to pay the payroll or whatever as an organisation. I think it had grown up just over the time as a volunteer organisation. Parents volunteered their time. They then started to employ some staff. And as the... Uh but it wasn't industries.
0: Probably professionally focused. It wasn't really it didn't see itself as a a proper functioning business. Oh, I, enterprise. Think, I think
1: it did. I just think, you know, economics time changes. Fundraising's always tough. And they spent everything they made and they overspent. I mean, there was people who, you know, just had to get those services. So they really felt incredibly passionate about that. But I think, you know, so one day we So what they dipped put,
0: into, did they go into debt?
1: Well, always in debt, I think, and relied often on bequests, you know, bequest income that may come in, may come in, you know, and whatever. So you, you can't, so I think they, you know, we all knew that wasn't the way to run the organization and it wasn't, it was very well run always. But It really did need to have a game changer around, well, you know, what's the future going to look like there? And that's been a long journey, yeah.
0: And what was that game changer?
1: Well, I think a few things. I think it was one was putting a a line in the sand to say there is a point where you can't provide, you've got to stay within your means around what services you can provide. And, you know, we were providing a lot of housing for people that's really expensive and, you know, we could no longer offer more places there. We just stopped that. So there was a bit of a line in the sand and it was really then trying to embark on saying, how do you reframe this? Um, So,
0: sorry, when you stepped into the CEO role, when you moved into that role, did you – say we need a reset we need to i i need to be perhaps harsher on some of these decisions we can't just keep supplying services
1: without really having a way to pay for them yeah look i think it was it was the board and i who looked at that you know always always working with great board at our organization they're amazing group of people and then we really just had to do a reset there, and it was really like saying we are going to, you know, stay within our means, look at more sort of government money. So we looked at more government money. We also then meaning to how to it up,
0: access it, yeah, how
1: to access government money, and also look at at more fundraising. So that's our major income streams, and in, you know, from the time I've been there,
0: would you say you had a vision back then when you first came in? was it a and if you did was it a small vision that oh we just have to get the finances back on track and then we'll be fine or was it actually you had a big vision for what could be achieved here
1: look i think if you go back in the whole history it's always been an organization that has thought big so it's it's always been something about we are just not here to service this small group of people who live in sydney it is actually servicing australia and the world and i think that's the that's the thing that drives our organization So we have this incredible resources, incredible history, these amazing staff who are so talented. We should be sharing that with the rest of the world. And that's where the Research Foundation came from in a way. It was saying, well, why why shouldn't we lead the world in this research space? So where the Research Foundation came from was almost a funding source to say let's establish a foundation that can help fund some of these things that we need to do.
0: Was it a big leap for you to move from, say, your psychology training, your psychology background into the management? Or was it actually did the psychology really help you understand, perhaps walk in someone else's shoes?
1: Yeah, look, I think working with great people, you learn a lot. And then also the psychology, I think it probably helps more than hinders at times, although my staff might not agree with that. And, you know, I'd worked in various roles in the organisation. As I told my board in the interview, you know, I know where the skeletons are because I've put most of them there. But, you know.
0: (laughs) So what were the first really important steps you needed to put in place or you needed to take all the important decisions you needed to make. If you can just cast your yeah, mind. Back I to- mean
1: that's that I mean the first thing is to get really great people around you. And that's what I talked to the board about, getting some people who I knew of and people who had maybe worked for me in the past. So I actually got a really strong team around me and I still have an incredibly strong team around me. And I think that's probably the most important thing you do as a CEO is you get your, you get the right people on the bus, as they say. And so we had the right people on the bus and that just helps drive it so much forward, as well as then having, you know, a clear strategy with the board about our way forward.
0: And sorry, when was this, when did you start uh, as CEO? Early 2000s, yeah. yeah. You had a clear strategy with the board. Did you have a business model? Did you have a plan that you stuck to? Was there another organisation either in Australia or elsewhere you thought that's where we need to be? Was there a role model in that sense or did it really really come from your own strategy?
1: No, I mean, you always look towards other organisations. There was an interesting MS organisation here in Australia, sort of MS Australia, who had started a research arm as well and they'd set up as a separate organisation almost, as a separate part of, of MS But Australia. even, sorry,
0: transforming Cerebral Palsy Alliance or transforming it, you know, to put it on this much better, safer, more resilient, sustainable financial footing... How difficult was that to do? Well,
1: I mean, it's a business with a social purpose. I suppose that's what you're trying to do here, and that's I suppose that's the approach we started to take. That this this has to be run as a good business with a really strong social purpose and strong mission, which we we then had. So I think again, you know, trying to get those finances right, getting good financial people around you, and how did you get those finances right? Give us some
0: nitty gritty. How did you access the government money? That is there and that perhaps you didn't know about or the organization hadn't been accessing. Yeah, it's
1: really getting close to government. So here in 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 sort of New South Wales, they were our major funder in those days. So it was becoming very close to to, to them, making sure that they come stripe, and see you mean? exactly. you yeah. have always got to do that and to get them to come out, open things to be part of the organization. In a sense, you're trying to make them look good, and that's really important. So you've got to get that sort of stream of income right because that, that was our key stream of income in those days. And then getting a good fundraising team, because our fundraising, since sort of the Miss Australia Quest closed, which was sort of on its knees when it closed, that's partly why well they closed it because it wasn't making the money it had been in the past. It was really to get a good fundraising team so you can then get that team operating well and start to make money and then it's really around oper you know having the right people to run the operations within the organization having really good people there
0: and then is it also part of it is sort of building support and momentum both in the medical fraternity, and so people like Nadia help you with that. That was a little bit later, but within government and within your community support base.
1: Yeah, and within the medical side, you know, we we employ a lot. We are the largest employer of, of OTs, physios and speeches you know in the state so a lot of those people had come from state health a lot of them had gone back there so we're very well known within that and we're a referral path from all those major children's networks and whatever so yes there was that and then the donor side of it was something that you know i was really actively involved in with key people within our organization to go out there and try and really change that to get more money into the organization.
0: Yeah, can you remember one particular bequest or donation that really helped kind of solidify or, or make it more sustainable the finances in yeah. those early
1: days of your reign? I mean, yeah, we we, you know, we got a couple of very good bequests in my early days, so I suppose you could say that's, you know, good fortune, and then we obviously got one when we started the research foundation as well. We'll, so those, we'll get onto that in yeah, a moment. Yeah, so I mean all that but but it, it was really around just trying to make it more sustainable as an organisation and trying to get that fundraising piece right and not not totally relying upon bequests. You know, we slowly weaned ourselves off that. Uh, we still obviously love getting bequests because they're great to be able to invest into new programs and new innovation. But you can't rely upon that as an income stream, which we were doing as an organisation. We, we were putting that in the budget as a budget line. You can't really do that. The decision to do away with the Miss
0: Australia Quest, was that in your time and and was it a difficult decision for the organisation to make given that it was still a big brand name? I think it
1: was. I mean, although it was before my time or just as I was coming on board, but it was what happened in Victoria is a male went into the Miss Australia Quest in I think it was 1999 or something. So I think that caused quite a bit of controversy. To make a political point, yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't making the money that it had been making as an organisation. So I think they thought the time was up. So the last Miss Australia was in the year 2000.
0: Rob, in 2011, you decided to change the name of the organization. Now, the Spastic Center, we no longer really use that word spastic. Was that part of it? And yet that was also a very well-known brand name, yeah. if you
1: want to call it that. No, I think that was the whole dilemma. So for a long time, we sort of knew the name was probably inappropriate or you know, out of date. Had a wonderful history, wonderful brand, as we said earlier, oldest cerebral palsy organization that the world. Everyone knew it, the medical people especially knew it very well. But part of our dilemma was worrying about, because our fundraising was such a key component of our organization, that would our fundraising fall off once we lost that brand? And it was a very clever person that we had who was sort of my head of marketing at the time, Marcus, and uh, I believe his name is, and he worked... With uh, myself and the board and we had a great great creative agency who worked with us to look at, well, what should we change the name to and how can we move that forward? And we're an alliance in a sense that we work with so many people across the world. So we always felt that was a pretty strong name.
0: So it was sort of a tribute to the people who are part of this cerebral palsy family, really, both workers and therapists, as well as families, volunteers,
1: as well as the clients. Yeah. And we haven't looked back from that point. It's been a really great name and a great brand to move forward. And then once you did that, how did the scale-up
0: sort of go then? I mean, it must have been, it was still growing and, you know, you still needed funding.
1: Yeah, well, we then started to work on the NDIS idea and that was an idea that sort of started quite early. In fact, it started way back with Golf Whitlam. You know, he, he had three big schemes that he wanted to do. One of them was Medicare, one of them was a NDIS-like scheme and one was the dental scheme. There was a group of people led by Bruce Bonahady down in, in Victoria who took that to the Kevin Rudd summit that happened. So that was 07. So that was before 11. And it was one of the big 10 ideas to come out of that summit was around an NDIS. So that's the sort of been the long, long, long gestation. part of the issue there was that because the government funding was so well, it was too small, but it was it was disjointed. It meant, you know, we've always had a great health system in Australia. So if a person's diagnosed with anything, you know, we have a great health system to take care of them. The issue is that once they leave that health setting, where do they get their services from? So for families, they really had to beg, steal, whatever to get a service. And we got a finite amount of state funding and we could fundraise. That's really the only service we could provide. So the NDIS did sort of start to be a vision there to say it's a person's right, it's their entitlement to get money if they either acquire a disability or they're born with a disability. So that's that's been a bit of a game changer for the whole of Australia. It's been a game changer for a lot of people who have to live with a disability,
0: how has it changed the game for you as the organisation who delivers services,
1: delivers programs, yeah, well, one it means we can provide more service because, in a sense, we're we're not for profit, but that stream of income is almost a fee for service, if you like, because the government, you know, gives the funding to the person to spend and go and buy services for yeah, where they want to them. Yeah, but they, they could go to, to Joe Blow them. down they the could road as well. So that's why marketing-wise, we had to, you know, ramp that up. In the past, we didn't have to market for clients or or, or consumers, whatever you want to call them, because we had. Too many, we couldn't actually supply the service to them. While now, you know, we have to market to to clients. In saying that, we have um, sort of a lot of people who still come to our services over seven thousand a year.
0: So, are you a great supporter of NDIs?
1: Absolutely, you know, passionate. It's great. It's, you know, it's, it's been a, it's fantastic. And you know, what a great country we have, the best health scheme in the world. And now we have a scheme of entitlement around disability. You've become a much more focused,
0: uh, sort of professionally run, uh, this is my assessment, not-for-profit organisation, operating very much as a business. You also have a legendary reputation for fundraising. What's the fundraising model? Do you get different fundraising groups to help you with each big event and that's how it works so well? Yeah,
1: I mean, in our events, we're sort of blessed to have amazing people around us. So everybody who comes towards our organisation is just such a wonderful supporter. So, yes, with our events style of of fundraising, we certainly have wonderful groups who who, um, work with us to bring people towards the organisation. So I suppose our fundraising style is really to try and get out there and, and meet and bring people and entice them to the organisation and see the great need. I mean, most people don't know what cerebral palsy is. Most people don't know that it's underfunded. It needs money. Most people don't know that you know a child's born every day in Australia with cerebral palsy. So there's, this, there's a lot of education we still need to do there. And most people, you know, when they hear that story, want to come on board. So is that still the statistics? What, are, what is the picture of cerebral palsy now? In Australia, there's about forty thousand people we estimate to have it. In the world, there's seventeen million. So in Australia, it's one a day. One person's born with cerebral palsy every day. So it's it's a very high incidence.
2: Yes, and I think too you know we say that there's forty thousand people, but the impact on their families, the numbers are huge when you think about it. Because you know you're there in newborn intensive care, and you've got two parents usually. They're devastated. The grandparents other family members. The impact of cerebral palsy is really enormous, and it affects the siblings. It's a very big problem that the numbers really don't, they don't give the whole story, do they?
0: Yeah. Nadia, when you came on to do this role, Did you also have a big vision or did you think, oh, I've got a full-time job, I'm at one of the biggest, busiest children's hospitals in this state, the, the key children's hospital at Westmead. I'm the medical director of the intensive care ward for that hospital for babies and children. Did you think I'll help them on the
2: side or did you actually have a bigger vision in those early days? I think, and I know this sounds, you know, I'm going to say what I really feel about this, is that for me, it's been a mission. And I think for me, life has meaning in how you help other people. I feel I'm part of a big community. And I suppose when I did medicine, there was a chance to help mothers and babies. And that's part from my background, from my parents and my, on both sides, That we were taught very early, your life has no purpose. Your purpose in life is to serve. I know that sounds very old fashioned, but it works both ways. So in medicine, I could help one baby at a time. And that's important. And you learn a lot doing that. And you can help one family at a time. But then there's always the temptation to do more. And I could see that there is more we can do with research. So the medical work helps, again, you know, the individual, but the research can help thousands of people. And if we really did it well, it could help the whole world. And I think for me, you're not trained when you do medicine to think about a business. So doing the research really becomes, it is a business. It has to be done properly. And I was lucky enough to be approached for this job, which actually I really didn't think I had the skills for. And I kept thinking, why don't they employ a neurologist or a rehabilitation physician? It seemed odd to me. And I then went to speak to the professor of neurology, Professor Robert Ouvray. And I said, look, they want me to do this job, but I actually feel ill-equipped to do it. Why? Because I thought it was a job for a neurologist or a rehabilitation physician. Because again, I suppose I was thinking more of children with cerebral palsy and adults. And then he's a very wise, one of the best neurologists in the world. And Robert said to me, Nadia, I think you're the best person. I said, Why? I said, because if they put a neurologist or a rehab physician, everybody's going to hate them. And think, well, why didn't I get offered that job? He said, they're going to be so stunned that a newborn intensive care physician is doing it, that you won't be attacked. You'll be able to grow this. And he understood. He said, you are very interested. You've done your PhD in newborn brain damage. It's what you talk about all the time. This is what matters to you more than anything else that you do. So do it. And we started out small. uh, So we started out half time. I had a couple of people with me, and I was allowed to grow slowly and make mistakes. And I think that's when you have some ability and then you surround yourself again with a team who have different skills. So I think for the board, for me, the board and Rob have different abilities. I know what my weaknesses are, I knew what my failings are. So to have those complemented by people who understand a different way of looking at things. And I've learned a lot. So I think if you want to, I knew what I wanted to achieve. I just didn't know how to achieve it. But I know that I really wanted to do this. I think the gift that I have is that I know what I want to do and I don't easily let things stand in my way. And my kids and husbands say I could nag for Australia, and if it were an Olympic sport, I'd be the world champion. And I think that's good. So it is true, exactly what Rob said, surrounding yourself with people who can amplify what you do and also guide you. That's a perfect spot to take a break. And
0: we're going to talk more about the way you founded and built the Research Foundation for Cerebral Palsy Alliance. Join me next week for part two of this conversation when Rob White and Professor Nadia Badawi reveal how they scaled up the CP Research Foundation into a powerhouse to have better outcomes for people living with CP, how they're attracting the best talent and how they're taking their vision to the rest of the world. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks and be sure to subscribe as there'll be plenty of upcoming episodes with more amazing Australian innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their idea into an empire.